Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. You can also follow along on the screen. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray and get to work on this text, shall we? Father in heaven, we are grateful for your mercy in giving us the word of God, and we are thankful for... Hard texts like this one that remind us that we need your help, that bring um, preparers and studiers and preachers to their knees saying, God, help us, help me to understand this passage. And Lord, I pray today that uh, my analysis and treatment of this text would be both helpful and clear, and that it might exalt um, the image of marriage and this one flesh union that you have designed, and might help us to know how to navigate this difficult minefield of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we pray for your help and for discernment today from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that our steady diet of preaching here at College Park is going through a particular book of the Bible and kind of walking through verse by verse is because that causes us to come upon passages that you wouldn't normally just choose to talk about on a whim. In fact, there are lots of different things that I love to talk about in the Bible, and there are some things that I will talk about in the Bible, and there's some things that I just don't like to talk about, but I have to in the Bible, and this would be one of those subjects. The reason is that when I look like at the preaching calendar, there are certain subjects that I groan when I see them coming, not because I don't have something to say, but rather because there are certain subjects on which everyone has an opinion, there are certain subjects on which everyone has a context, And then there are certain subjects that are incredibly emotional. And divorce happens to be the combination of all three of these issues at once. And so therefore it makes it very challenging to kind of navigate through these challenging waters. And I would imagine that every single person in this room has had some level of personal experience in regards to this issue of divorce. You have an aunt or maybe a mom or um, you, you yourself have experienced the difficulty of divorce. All of us may have different circumstances and different situations that inform this issue, but there's one common denominator. 
And that is that divorce always includes an enormous amount of pain. And because of that, this subject is loaded. Loaded with emotion, loaded with context, loaded with your scenario, your parent's scenario. And what I want to encourage you to do today, as we walk through this passage, I want you just for a few moments to try and set aside kind of your own personal experience for a moment, and try not to bring that to the text, but rather let's let the text say what it says, and then apply that to our own scenarios. As, as hard, as difficult, or as may as uh, much tension producing as that may be, I want to encourage you to try and do that today. And my commitment to you is to walk through what I understand this passage to say. I hope to be clear. When you leave, I, I don't. you may not agree with how I take this passage. You may not like what I say, but I don't want you walking out here going, what exactly did he say? And so therefore I want to be clear, and I also want to be pastoral and careful because I don't want to add to anyone's pain. I don't want to add to the difficulties in your life, but I want to try and help us understand what the Bible says on this really loaded subject of divorce and remarriage. Now you need to know that divorce was a controversial subject in Jesus' day as it is in ours and the subject is addressed not in an academic setting, it's, it's addressed really in a political s- setting, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and their intention is to try and peel off some followers by making Jesus really controversial. And so they go for the jugular, if you will, on a culturally controversial subject like divorce in order to try and trap him. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that Jesus moved from where he was to the region of Judea beyond Jordan, and there were still large crowds that were following him. And the Pharisees then came and tried to marginalize Jesus by asking him this question on such a divisive issue. Essentially, the text identifies for us two questions and then a clarification. The question is, first, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We see that in verse 3. The second question is, why did Moses command that we give a certificate of divorce and send her away? It's in verse 7. And then finally, the disciples respond, not so much with a question, but with a statement that says, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now that's helpful, because if we get the first two questions right then the natural response from those who hear Jesus' teaching should be, whoa, maybe it's better not to get married or to be very careful as we go into marriage. So if I handle this passage correctly, then there ought to be a sense in your heart of, boy, maybe I should just be really careful as I'm approaching marriage. To have a cavalier attitude of marriage would mean that you not really understand the point that Jesus is making here. And so that makes the text and its meaning even more loaded So let's begin with the first question. The question that Jesus is asked is, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? The text says, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. That word test is also translated as tempt in other passages of scripture. Like, for example, when Jesus is in the wilderness and other sections like Galatians 6.1, where we're to consider ourselves lest we also be tempted The idea is to try and entrap, and so what this is, is an attempt by the followers of the Pharisees to try and put Jesus into a controversial box, and to make him appear very controversial. Divorce, during the time of Jesus, was based upon an interpretation of an Old Testament passage, and that passage is Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the entire understanding of divorce really hinged on your interpretation of this passage. Here's what the passage says. 
It said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, we'll look at the rest of the passage in a moment, but for now, what you need to know is that the whole debate about the issue of divorce hinged on how you interpreted that phrase of finds no favor because he finds some indecency in her. There were two positions on this particular phrase represented by two rabbis, so two schools of thought. One was called the Hillel position, and that was advocated by Rabbi Hillel And he took this phrase, because of some indecency, to mean virtually anything that a man found unsatisfactory. So if he found anything unsatisfactory with his wife, he was allowed to send her away, to divorce her. And this particular position allowed for divorce in nearly any case, including if a wife spoiled her husband's dinner, or if he found some other woman more attractive, more appealing, or if he simply became bored with his wife over the years. And so therefore, this led to fairly a liberal view of what divorce was really all about. The other position advocated by Rabbi Shammai was far more restrictive. And it understood the phrase, because of some indecency, to be limited to the idea of sexual sin or adultery. And therefore, this position was that divorce wasn't allowed except in the cases of some kind of sexual sin or adultery. As you can see, these are two very different positions, one allowing divorce for virtually any reason and the other much more restrictive. And therefore, this is the nature of the controversy that Jesus is thrown into. They're asking him, which camp do you ascribe to? The discussion would have been a cultural minefield to navigate since everyone would have been familiar with this debate and everyone would have had an opinion and Jesus would surely distance himself or offend someone, which is quite how I feel this morning as I have to handle this text. (laughs) And so it's a nasty trap. It's an unenviable position to be in, but you have to answer the question because it's culturally relevant. This is an issue in our land, in our culture as well, and so we have to address it. It's in the Bible for a reason. So... What does Jesus do? In verses 4 to 6, he answers this trick question by making three important points. And here they are. The first point that he makes is that marriage, the union between a man and a woman, was designed by God. Jesus begins his answer by appealing all the way back to creation, appealing back to the original plan. Look at what he says in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What Jesus did is he used a familiar rabbinic argument, which was the more original, the weightier, in order to appeal all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So he takes the issue of, in what cases should you be divorced? And then he goes way back to the very beginning and and addresses the, the, the foundational elements, not only of divorce and not only of marriage, but for that matter, he addresses the foundational elements of culture itself, appealing all the way back to the essence of creation. He appealed to the simple fact that maleness and femaleness and marriage were God's idea and his prescribed plan. What Jesus is saying here, and something that we need to hear on our own day, is that marriage was not a human or a civil or a government invention, nor is it simply the description, marriage, of two loving, monogamous human beings. Rather, 
marriage was God's idea of male and female, and in their union saying something about him. So in the midst of all of the questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage, and and now even our own day, questions about civil unions or so-called same-sex marriage, Jesus establishes something really, really important, something that I think we need to be reminded about, and that is this. To mess with marriage is to mess with God's plan for the creation of the world. You see, love does not make a marriage. Commitment is not the basis of marriage. Do you know what the basis of marriage is? It's God. And therefore, to mess with this concept, or to suggest that two men or two women could have the same kind of marriage, is why I call it the so-called same-sex marriage. There is no same-sex marriage. It's a so-called same-sex marriage. Marriage is a man and woman. To deny that that's the way that the created world is would it be like a man who jumps from an airplane who hasn't hit the ground yet without his parachute open who says, I deny that there's gravity. And eventually, he will realize that gravity is real and that the laws of nature do work. Such is the very laws of our world that marriage, by definition, between a man and a woman is the foundation, not just of marriage or Society, it's the foundation of what creation is all about. So marriage, the union between a man and a woman, was designed by God. That's where Jesus starts. The second thing that he says is this, that the one flesh union in this marriage is sacred and special. Genesis 2.24, he quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus now moves from the institutional idea of marriage to what I'll call the metaphysical reality or the metaphysical idea of marriage. Meaning that there's something beyond physics, beyond the physical that's happening in the context of marriage. And he talks about here the one flesh union. It indicates that a marriage creates a new relationship, that a husband and wife leave their families. The verbs there for leave and hold to indicate strong, decisive action. And the result in this leaving is a unique relationship, different than the relationship between a parent and a child. And the effect of this is that now there's this new one flesh union created in the context of marriage. This one flesh idea is what I mean by this metaphysical reality. And what that means is that Jesus is pointing here to something special, something divinely designed, something otherworldly that happens in the union between two married people. That there's something more than just the institution of marriage and something more than just sexual activity. That the joining of a man and a woman in marriage is so profound, so beautiful, so unique, and so mysterious that it creates a third reality in the world, this one flesh marriage, this this one flesh union that's supposed to, in point of fact, communicate something about the Trinitarian elements of who and what God is. And then in this union, they create another entity, a child. And what Jesus is saying is that this union is both sacred and special. This one flesh union, this metaphysical reality, there's something more here than just physical activity, something more than just marriage vows, something more than just having a home. There is a physical, physiological, metaphysical, spiritual reality called one flesh. In fact, Paul uses this one flesh notion to warn the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6. 
that their loose morals in engaging in immoral acts with temple prostitutes didn't fit with God's beautiful plan because you become one flesh with them and you take Christ with you. So what he's saying here is that this one flesh union is sacred and spiritual. Let me just pause here and hopefully help you understand that we live in a culture that would want to convince us that there's no real consequence I mean, no real consequence to the violations of this one flesh marriage union. In other words, you can be immoral with whomever you want, and what's the worst that could happen? Maybe you get pregnant. But the reality is there's something else going on. Whether it's immoral behavior before marriage, whether it's immoral behavior during marriage, the prevailing mentality in our culture is that sexual promiscuity is normal and relatively harmless. Just a steady diet of sitcoms and late night TV would cause you to, to realize that there's a, a mentality within our culture that immorality is laughable and at worst entertaining. The problem is that that couldn't be further from God's truth. God has designed marriage and this physical intimacy in marriage to create this powerful third reality and sexual activity involves a really important part of who you are. That physical union brings metaphysical communion. In other words, despite what our culture says, you give a deeply personal part of yourself in this union, and the only safe place to do so is in a Christ-exalting marriage. Every other arena in which you violate this one-flesh concept, you lose part of that metaphysical reality, which is why guilt and why you look in the mirror and say, why in the world do I do this? There's something wrong and your conscience knows it. So immorality may seem appealing at first, but you leave a part of your soul behind. Therefore, the breakup of any marriage, the, 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 the pain of sexual sin it creates an unnatural and extremely painful tearing of a union that God has put together. The, the pulling away of this one flesh union that God himself has glued together and the ripping away of that creates enormous pain. And Jesus said this about this one flesh union, appealing all the way back to creation in order to cut through the human tendency to downplay marriage and underestimate the real pain of the pulling apart of this one flesh union. So the one flesh union, therefore, is both sacred and special. And listen, we need as a church and as parents and in small groups and in our children's ministry to help our children, our teenagers, our young adults and older folks understand this reality of what it means to be one flesh. The, the reason is because our culture is painting a very, very different picture. This week, uh, Barbara Billingsley passed away. Do you know who she is? She died at age 94, I believe her age was. And uh, I remember watching her as a kid, some old reruns. She was the mom on Leave it to Beaver. And uh, I remember watching um, her and Ward and and uh, Eddie Haskell, remember him? And this kind of surreal picture of, of what life was all about. And and I know she's probably not, you know, the stereotypical mom. Most of you wives don't do house cleaning in three-inch heels, a cocktail dress, and pearls. But... Uh, <laughs> The reality is that image, although a bit maybe archaic, isn't dangerous. 
But I would argue the picture that our children get today of modern-day women and men and their relationships and how sexual activity engages in all that is extremely dangerous. And therefore, we've got to help our kids understand the value of this one flesh union and the beauty of what God has designed in marriage because the problem here in this passage is not divorce, beloved. Divorce is just the symptom. The real problem is a divergence from God's design and a lack of respect and awe for this one flesh union. Therefore, third, Jesus says in verse 6 that marriage was designed to be permanent. He says all of this in order to make one very point, one very clear point, and that is that God intended for marriage to be a permanent relationship. Jesus even responds in verses 6 and 7 by repeating the one flesh statement and then adds a warning. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, this new reality, this special reality, this, this one flesh union was designed to be a permanent reality. That's how sacred, that's how special, that's how unique it was that God designed life to be this way. And human beings should tremble at the thought of messing around with God's plan. See, there is more at stake here and more at play here than just what we see or think or our opinions. Jesus is addressing here a culturally cavalier attitude about sexual sin and a culturally cavalier attitude about divorce. But the problem is not really divorce. The problem is not fully appreciating or respecting this beautiful union that God has designed that he calls one flesh, of which he says, let not man separate. So, Jesus comes... To this first question, and that's his answer. But it's, it's really not an answer. He appeals all the way back to the garden, all the way back to how things were at the very beginning, and he wants to push his readers, Matthew wants to push the readers, and Jesus wants to push his hearers, all the way back to the foundational issues that are at stake here. Because... If you don't go back there and you just start dealing with, well, what's the exception clause mean? And can you get divorced for this and that, this and that? You end up talking about all of the exceptions, all of the hard case. And as you learn in law school, hard cases can make bad laws. you got to go back to the foundation. What was the yes that God wanted in marriage and in this one flesh union? The other problem is that if we're not careful, we'll spend more time talking about the possible reasons for divorce than we will thinking about the beauty of what God intended this one flesh union to be. So he highlights the beauty, the mystery, the awe of this one flesh permanent relationship, and the Pharisees, though, are less than satisfied, so they ask him another question. And here's the question. The second question is, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? So they go back now to Deuteronomy 24, in which Moses gave instructions about how to handle issues related to divorce. We read the first part of the verse. Let's read it again, and then we'll continue it on so you can kind of see what's going on here. And listen for the regulations. Listen to the fact that Moses is trying to fix something that's wrong, and that's why he says this. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and, she, and he sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord." 
And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you get the sense that this divorce thing has some regulations in it. Some, it's, it's trying to hold something together. It's trying to hold culture from spinning apart, coming apart the seams, if you will. Verse 8. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Here's something very important. And it's this. That divorce regulates injustice from hardened hearts. This is really important. If you don't understand this point, you will, you'll make bad decisions about how to think about divorce in, in multiple scenarios. Because underlying the issue of divorce is this issue of injustice. Let me explain this. The reason that this case law was given and the reason that Moses instructed them to give a certificate of divorce was because it was not uncommon for a man to decide that he no longer wanted his wife around. And therefore, he could just merely send her away. He could say, I'm not interested in you anymore, you're not attractive to me, or even if she committed adultery or something else, he just could send her away. And the result was without dealing with the legal requirements of their marriage, this woman would just be sent out and then there would be multiple problems. The first problem is that legally she's still his wife. And therefore she was not free to remarry because legally she was already bound to her husband. The second problem was by sending her away, even if it was for innocent means, if she had done nothing wrong, well, a husband could now by the whim of his will put this huge cloud over this defenseless woman and she'd be sent out without any hope of sustenance, her life would be doomed. She'd be legally tied to a man who won't help her or protect her or provide for her and she would have this, this cloud of immorality hanging over her. And therefore, this hardness of heart, the hardness of heart was not in the divorce, the hardness of heart was what divorce tried to remedy. The hardness of heart was this unwillingness to treat people in a way that was kind and fair. The hardness of heart was based upon the whim of a man, in this case, to send his wife out for any known cause. He could then doom her life. And the injustice of this, therefore, was solved by the divorce requirements. Meaning, you can't just send a woman away. You have to give her a bill of divorce. You have to give her a certificate of divorce. Why? To verify that, one, she's now free, and secondly, to demonstrate that there should be no cloud hanging over top of her. So the purpose of the divorce was, and this is really important to be sure, that the sinful actions of a hard-hearted spouse didn't create a greater injustice. So divorce, therefore, was designed to regulate something created by the sinful actions of others. And this is why the Bible can allow divorce at the same time say that God hates it. This is why it can be allowed as a regulation, and God himself can even use it in Isaiah 50 and verse 1 as a threat to Israel, speaking about what he's, or a threat to Judah, speaking what he's already done to Israel. So the real problem then, friends, is not divorce. The real problem is a hard heart. Divorce was an attempt to deal with the great injustice of a person who could care less about their actions and the effect of their actions on an innocent spouse. And so divorce, while undesirable, prevents a greater injustice of people making marriage covenants and then treating each other with contempt and then creating additional relationships without ever dealing legally with the past marriage. So there is something far worse than a culture that has divorce. It would be a culture of people who just never deal with their marriage covenants and just act any way they want. That would be the worst of the worst. 
So no one wins in a divorce. It's not God's original design, and yet it's allowed because of hard hearts. Think of divorce, if you will, as a moral guardrail against the greater injustice caused by hardened hearts. So divorce is not the problem. Hard hearts are. I've been thinking about this for two weeks. The best illustration I can come up with is this. A police officer and folks in the military have the authorization to use lethal force. Lethal force is used to prevent a greater and worse injustice. Nobody uses lethal force without really thinking through the effects of what they're going to do. But when lethal force is used, sometimes it needs to be used to prevent a greater injustice. But if the person's heart is right, who uses lethal force, they would never look at lethal force and say, boy, yeah, that was a good thing. No no police officer has ever stood over the body of a person who they have shot in the line of duty and thought, yeah, that's a good thing. But instead, this lethal force is a necessary thing allowed in order to prevent a greater injustice. I think that's what divorce is. Allowed, hated, negative, but necessary in order to curtail the hardness of the human heart. So, secondly, Jesus then takes the discussion further. He says that divorce and remarriage are allowed in the case of sexual sin. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, then verse 9, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus takes the issue to another level. He uses the word porneia here for um, sexual immorality. It's not the normal word that's used for adultery. Porneia has a wide range that means anything in the sexual realm. Various forms of sexual sin, which is why ESV renders it as sexual immorality, not adultery. Therefore, Jesus clearly comes down on the side of the Shammai school of thought with two major qualifications. The first being that this is not the way that God wanted it to be. And secondly, the only reason that divorce is in the world is because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that divorce and remarriage have to happen. Jesus' teaching here identifies a legitimate path, but that doesn't mean that it has to happen this way. And so therefore, when we think about divorce, we always have to keep two realities in mind, and these are intention. First, we should always hope for and pray for and work towards the possibility of forgiveness and restoration, even when the most heinous sins happen in the context of a marriage. A repentant person can be forgiven, and reconciliation can be a beautiful thing, even when it involves heinous sin and hurtful sin like sexual sin. But secondly, I want to acknowledge here that we need to see that sexual sin, while it can be forgiven, is extremely serious. In the midst of a culture that downplays the effects and uses words like an affair or a one-night stand, we need to use what the Bible calls it, adultery, immorality. In the midst of a culture so bent on downplaying these sins, I want you to hear Proverbs 5.32, which says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Forgiveness, hear me, is possible, but you can't reset the clock on the fact that this reality happened. Our culture would say it's just sex, but the Bible says there's something more here, that sexual immorality creates a tearing of the one flesh union. It's a deep wound to the marriage. It breaks the marriage covenant, and this innocent spouse, I think legally and biblically, would have the right to end the marriage 
that has already been broken by sexual sin. Again, let me say, it doesn't have to happen, but it could. So I would argue that while divorce is bad, hear me, I think sexual sin is far worse. I think there's some of you who dabble in sexual sin who think, well, my spouse would never leave me. And the reality is you need to realize that sexual sin takes the flesh of the one flesh union and tears it apart. Further, I wonder if our scales have tipped so far in regards to our negative view of divorce that we often view divorce as the ultimate worst thing in life rather than seeing sexual sin for what it really is. I think that divorce simply recognizes and brings to a legal conclusion what sexual sin has already created. And that is a tearing, a a, a violation of that marriage covenant. So that then opens up another challenging question. Is sexual sin the only justifiable means for divorce and remarriage? And there are two things to remember here. We've got one issue with divorce and another with remarriage. And often those are separate. In fact, in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, it says, He who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So the issue of the adultery in Matthew 19 is tied to the divorce and then an improper remarriage. So it's divorce and remarriage. Meaning that, I think that it's possible for divorce to be allowed and in some cases remarriage not. Divorce might be allowable in certain situations because of an injustice that's happening, but remarriage might not. For instance, I think in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, when Paul says this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. I think there are some scenarios in life that require justice, and the only just remedy to protect a spouse from another spouse is divorce. Abuse would be one, physical abuse, and there might be others that I don't have in the front of my mind. But in in those scenarios, I think it's advisable, according to 1 Corinthians 7, to remain unmarried and pray and hope for future reconciliation, recognizing, though, that the divorce merely recognizes the problem and the challenge and the injustice of what's happening in the context of that marriage. Later on in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul addresses another scenario where an unbeliever leaves the marriage. Abandonment, this is often called. It says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Therefore, it's my view that a believer would be free to remarry after a divorce when an unbeliever leaves. However, Verse 39 of the same chapter says they should only marry in the Lord. So, I've just given you a bunch of material. Let me summarize it for you so you know exactly where I personally am at, and then you can decide if this fits with how you see the Scriptures. First, God intended marriage to be a permanent, one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman. Second, forgiveness and restoration of a marriage should be the ultimate and hopeful goal. Third, violating the one flesh union of a marriage is a really big deal. Fourth, divorce was instituted to regulate the hard-hearted, unjust treatment of spouses, particularly, particularly the unjust treatment of women. Sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever would be grounds for divorce and remarriage, and divorce for other significant injustices, for instance, abuse might be allowed, but it seems this person is advised to remain unmarried. So if we have the passage right, then in your heart there ought to be this sense of, whoa, 
if that's the case, if it's that limited, if it's that narrow and I wouldn't be able to get remarried or the only option is if my spouse commits adultery, then maybe it's better to not get married. And that's the response of Jesus' disciples because that's what they say. Is it better not to marry? In their minds, a world of limited divorce and limited remarriage would, in their view, create a great deal of caution in getting married. And Jesus so elevated the view of marriage and restricted divorce and remarriage such that they wondered, is singleness perhaps even better? And Jesus responds with an affirmation of singleness, not identifying it as better per se or more spiritual, but as a legitimate option. Verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. means that being a single is actually a God-given gift. I know a friend of mine who one time had somebody ask him, do you have the gift of singleness? And he said, oh my word, I hope not. Right? And that's kind of a wrong perspective to have, although common. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made by eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus doesn't say it's better not to marry, but he does affirm the value of singleness in a world that is riddled with ruined marriages. And what Jesus is indicating here, it seems, that he wants his followers to think very carefully about the value and the permanence and the seriousness of marriage. And he wants them to realize that singleness would be far better than a lifelong bad marriage. And Jesus wants to make this point clear that the one flesh union and commitment in marriage are a sacred bond. Now, let me give some concluding implications of this. First, to those of you who are single... I want you to realize that your present single status in life is not second best. It's not plan B. Despite how well-meaning friends or your mom talk to you about it. (laughs) Singleness can be a season of great opportunity. And let me just say this. Better to remain single for life than to enter into a bad, sin-filled marriage. You don't have to marry And if you do, choose very, very carefully. To the married, I want you to really consider the sacred one flesh bond that marriage is. I want you to work with all your God-given might to preserve and grow and protect your relationship with your spouse. I want you to tremble at the possibility of hard-heartedness setting in as you treat your spouse as your enemy. And for those of you who are technically married but you live as though you're at war, I want to plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ, whose bride is the church, and he uses marriage as an example to reconcile, get along, and for God's sake and for the sake of the name of Christ in this community, Make that marriage work by dying to yourself. Please. And be wary of hard-heartedness. To those of you who are presently involved in breaking a marriage, you can only imagine that there are some who are in various ways destroying their own marriages, the marriages of somebody else, Or you're a single person and you're destroying the future marriage of a single person. I want you to listen to me. With all the authority that I have as a minister of the gospel, I am telling you that you are destroying something that God holds dear and you will be held accountable in this life and in the next. That guilt that you feel is a warning sound from God telling you this is not right. You are messing with something that God says, 
Do not let man separate this. And finally, to those of you who are divorced, I want you to know that you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. I am so sorry for the countless ways in which you have been treated like that. Some of you live with the daily shame of past actions that you wish you could undo. Maybe a divorce that you look at now and say, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And God, by his mercy and his blood, can cleanse you of that, and you can have a new life moving forward. We all have our pasts. I know that you would, if you could, change the circumstances that brought about the ending of that marriage, and that wound is still real in your heart. It's healed, but it's there. And I want you to know there's there's hope for you. Hope in figuring out how God wants to glorify himself through your life, even as a divorced person. And he can glorify himself through your life. So the question is, is divorce okay? Hmm. That's a tricky question. In Jesus' day and in ours. And I hope that you understand that by talking about this, It just should make all of us grieve over the reality of sin in our world and it should make us realize and pray and plead for the presence of Christ in our lives, in our churches, and especially God helping us in our marriages. Father in heaven, I pray that today my words would be accurate and helpful, healing, And in some cases, like a knife that cuts and exposes the reality of what the heart is all about. I pray that, Lord, today you would open our eyes to how we need to apply this in our personal situations and the situations of others. And, God, that you would give us grace to know how to live in a world that seems hell-bent on destroying marriage and pulling apart one-flesh unions as if it's nothing. So help us, Lord. Give strength for purity to singles. Give a commitment to married folks to work on their relationship. Lord, bring conviction to those who are breaking marriages. And Father, give healing to those who know the pain very well of what it's like to have a marriage end in divorce. And we pray for your mercy and help. Before you leave, I want you to know that up front here afterwards, there will be some folks from our prayer team who would love to pray with you. If today there's something that you just need to talk about or pray through, don't leave today if there's some kind of burden that we can help you with. And so, Father, help us to respond in obedience to your word. Thank you for hard texts that humble us and challenge us and remind us that you are God and we are not. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.